Hey there, horror movie fans. Today is January 17th, 2020. I'm recording in the studio today on my 21st birthday. Yay! So, I hope 2020 is at least doing you guys some good, since it decided to um, pull a fast one on the horror genre. Now, I know I'm being a little pessimistic here. I mean, how bad can The Conjuring 3 and Halloween Kills possibly be? <clears throat> Which actually marks the 12th installment to the franchise, although a sequel to the Rob Zombie remake. So congrats, you just beat Friday the 13th. <sighs> but then I sit back and reflect. Remembering my past horror film experiences and putting in my preconceived notions which only failed me a couple times. Which leads me into today's episode. Don't judge a movie by its synopsis. So uh, let's talk about Tucker and Dale vs. Evil and Green Room, two completely separate subgenres within horror. So let's hit the hard one first with 2015's horror thriller with not so subtle body horror, Green Room while I am actually recording in a green room. Hmm. You know how long I've wanted to say that? So the story takes place with a punk rock band known as the Ain't Rights. Pretty much nomads who are traveling through the Pacific Southwest to perform at a neo-Nazi skinhead bar in the secluded area outside of Portland. Do you not see why it took me a year before I decided to watch this movie? Anyway, the band doesn't go off to such a very great start since they perform a song to a bunch of neo-Nazis about anti-racism. Before I actually continue, a little background about Green Room. See, it was directed by Jeremy Soltner, who also directed Murder Party and Blue Ruin which altogether comprised of Solner's trilogy that touched on an inept protagonist. But that's all I'm going to say on the matter. Going back, to make matters worse, after the show, one of the band members, Pat, played by none other than Anton Yelchin, may he rest in peace, goes back to the green room to get his band member Sam's phone. And what do you know? There's a dead body on the floor, stabbed to death by a, the skinhead worm. Now, the neo-Nazis could have killed the band after offending them on stage, but they didn't. The only reason leader Darcy, played by yours truly, Patrick Stewart, <laughs> intended on murder was because they witnessed the crime scene. This is where the realism and believability come into place in the film. The plot here is not that simple, and as the film progresses, it gets more and more complicated. The point of view switches between these organized neo-Nazis and the never really had to deal with the responsibility band members. You can see that from the beginning. The neo-Nazis possess control of the entire situation. When the band members tried to dial 911 and, well, didn't make it very far because, you know, big Justin got in the way, 911 still arrived, and Darcy covered it up by having two of the neo-Nazi members stab each other, only resulting in minimal jail time and not no murder charge, so... Honestly, the strategic actions of the neo-Nazis were what drew me in. Every action they took, they had a purpose. At this point, 
I had to re-watch a second time to fully pick up everything. And even then, it took me a third time before I actually picked up everything, in my opinion. Anyway, back to the band members. They embody humanization within horror. From their simplistic dialogue throughout that doesn't try so hard to explain what's happening, to their regretful actions due to the anxiety and panic they feel being thrown into this unpredictable circumstance. See, a lot of critics find this flawed in many horror films and subgenres, such as meta and slapstick, use that leeway to show us that if we were thrown into their predicament, we would make the same mistakes relevant to the circumstances. See, while we watch these movies, we don't feel that sense of urgency, which can cause more irrational behavior, but still should give us a sense of tension. So we must become a lot more empathetic. Now, of course, some films just butcher the idea and contradict their own implication, so there's two sides, give or take. Back to the point, when looking at the first encounter between the neo-Nazis and the band members, the band members use a smart instinct and lock all the doors, protecting themselves, even holding big Justin hostage. Uh, eventually killing him, you know, portraying the abrupt violence behavior, but, you know, that's different. To be honest, the way Darcy tried to rationalize with them, I would have opened the door at first, but they asked questions. They demanded the police, even though they know they are way over their heads. They do have someone on their team, Amber, friend of the stab victim, Emily. When the members decide to make a break for it, they leave the green room, and Reese, along with Tiger, decide to split up, which ultimately leads to their demise early on, and in truly gruesome fashion, with Reese exiting a window to multiple fatal stab wounds, quick though, and Tiger, who gets mauled in the neck by Cujo Jr., as I like to call him. Unmindful decisions can lead to consequences, but regardless if the team had split or not, their mindsets were all split from each other, each worrying about themselves, inevitably leaving them more vulnerable regardless. And now the remaining are back in the green room. You see, the characters progress more as we continue and develop a more mature nature as they realize their situation, which contrasts their carefree, no true order. I mean, they say it themselves, they play their music to be only in that moment, part of the pure experience and nothing more. Sorry, I went on a bit of a tangent, so once again, they make another attempt out. Let me tell you. I love the scene when Sam breaks the end of the long fluorescent light tube. Ooh, you go girl. Mm. Sadly, didn't last long. I mean, they got a gun. Then, as they were getting shot at, lost the gun, and Sam gets mauled by the, you know, Cujo Jr. Which, I mean, they, they could have came up with another way, but, you know, of her death. But, you know, the movie's still wonderful. It doesn't matter. And you guessed it. They're back in the green room. Our remaining survivors are Pat, whose arm was badly mangled with a machete earlier, and Amber, who was shot in the leg. At this point, they are wounded, losing faith, losing care, hopeless for survival, fatigued, 
but when looking at the fight or flight response, they continue to fight. You see, Pat partially told us a story earlier that was interrupted and finally comes around to finish in his big monologue. Basically, it's his paintball story where his friends went up against these Iraqi vets and they were getting crushed. The vets used, you know, hand signals and flanking. So Pat's friend Rick is like, screw this. And in the last match, he just tears out and wipes out their whole team. It's an analogy, of course, and what they had been doing the whole time, except missing the tactical aspect that is the answer to their problem. So that's what they do. Before I continue, back to the point of view of the skinheads. They are the equivalent to the Iraqi vets. I mean, these people put thought into everything they did. They call in the red laces, and they actually have red laces, to their attempts at framing the band members for trespassing on the neighbor's property, but, you know, propping their bodies, disposing of the neighbors to make it more like... You know, they had a gunfight broke out and they just fled or they got killed. You know, it's not completely, you know, defined. Just an entire setup, basically, which I absolutely love. Even to the extent that when they sent Worm home after everything, they gave him a batch of drugs, no biggie, but dosed it. So in the end, we get a clear shot of him shooting up, dead. Extremely subtle if you don't catch it. A frame suicide. There's more, I mean, disposing the bar, you know, disposing of the bar members to go home after, you know, very nonchalantly, like, hey, you know, everything's just not working, blah, blah. I'm just going to stop there because I'll, I'll continue to ramble and there's just so much and I love it, but, you know, we got to get back to the point. Darcy even comes to a breaking point where he shoves member Gabe against a wall out of anger then apologizes shortly after. All while Gabe never intended for any of this to happen and is kind of a coward as he runs away to seek help. So much believability in character development, not to mention we find out that another member, Daniel, who was secretly with Emily, was planning to escape. Then Daniel turns his back on the skinheads and truly helps the members. The skinheads find out when they search through his car out of suspicion, and it all leads to the most sudden and gasp-worthy death of the film. Daniel's gunshot to the head. As the audience, we are told this early on when Tad subtly says his cousin Daniel and his girl are coming to crash for the weekend. This is where I'm saying it took me the third time to watch it to even catch this. My goodness, I was, oof. Then when the band is brought up to Daniel, he spaz and shut them up real quick. Hello, hands all around us, guys. Pat and Amber bushwhack the skinheads by surprise with their eccentric behavior until they finally come face to face with Darcy. The tables now turn, and Darcy is the one filled with dread as he is now in that same vulnerable state that once was filled with power. This is the part that fully humanizes Darcy as he dastardly turns his back to them and walks away, realizing his failure and demise, no matter how intelligent he was. Unlike Darcy, Pat and Amber had nothing of importance left. I'm going to stop here green room 
this film is just it's truly incredible and suspenseful till the very very end i mean you don't even sympathize with most of the characters but you feel that hit because you know they did not deserve their gruesome torment the cinematography, especially the beginning shots and Anton's character being one of the survivors, even took me by surprise, honestly. Shoot, even the last line from Amber finished the film tastefully. Truly underrated, in my opinion. <sighs> okay, let's stay gory, but get a little bit more lighthearted. Let's jump right into Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. Okay, actually, maybe we should not do that. <laughs> uh, another film that took me one year to summon up the courage to sit down and watch. I mean, do you blame me just from the title alone? Tucker and Dale vs. Evil is a B-horror film with a dash of slapstick. Which is my mom's definition, means the whole container. And sprinkling off with a little sweet, sweet meta. It hits on the idea of two hillbillies taking a trip to their new vacation home in the backwoods and come across a group of ignorant college kids who mistake them as murderers as each one of them are killed off in a bizarre way due to their own misconception and misunderstanding. We are broken up into two parts and point of views as the audience. We see the oblivious, naive, and innocent side of Tucker and Dale's character that shines light on two people who rarely get looked at and while on the flip side the egotistical stereotypical and ignoramus side of these college kids yes i will continue to refer to them as kids i also put this film under the category of realism when looking at the plot as a whole the true definition of this episode don't judge a movie by its synopsis i consider dale more of the protagonist Especially after they save, you know, one of the college kids from drowning, which of course the rest of the kids think, you know, she has been abducted. And Dale protects her and cares for her the entire time up to the very end where he is the hero and gets the girl. Oh, and they also think that Tucker and Dale were part of the Memorial Day massacre, you know, years, years prior. It's like we're thrown into the setting of Evil Dead. Add in sharp objects, beat up pickup truck, and an eerie vibe, aka horror movie setting. As I mentioned earlier, each character, well each college kid, starts dying one by one, each of their own fault, from running into a broken piece of tree, broken tree, yeah, to running straight into the wood chipper to accidentally shooting yourself, to running into the woods with heels on. Okay, she didn't die from that. More of a, you know, lighting a cigarette in a fueled cabin. But still, just stay at home and look at a wall. It's more productive for these unsympathetic character types. Now, I must talk about some of the misunderstandings in the film. I truly felt so bad for Tucker and Dale. Once they saved Allison, they left a note in a tree log saying they had their friend since they, you know, didn't have a chance to have a face-to-face -face combo. Or when Tucker accidentally interferes with a beehive and gets attacked as he is swinging a chainsaw around. Even the first two encounters at the gas station when 
an introverted Dale is holding a grim reaper looking tool nervously talking to Allison and asking her some pretty serial killer-esque questions. In another lens, the story also centers around Dale, who, as the story develops, learns to overcome his highly introverted and awkward self, to learn to be his own person in this judgmental society. A true growth beast, if you must say. Anyway, I could go on forever, but let's touch a little bit on Chad. Oh my god, shiny boy's name Chad. Oof. I'm pretty sure a Chad in any horror movie is a bad omen within itself. Chad decides he is the leader and wants to fight back against Tucker and Dale since, well, even the police died in a brutal accident due to the housing malfunction. The police, when first encountering Tucker and Dale, had the same stereotype, but I mean, can, can you blame him? The car scene didn't suit them very well. But once at the cabin hears them out and at least gives them the benefit of the doubt to this big misunderstanding, a pretty important juxtaposition. Chad, being our antagonist, is seeking revenge for his parents who were involved with the Memorial Day Massacre. Until the very end, when he finds out his father was the killer hillbilly, and he was a product of rape, which explains his mother's distance from him. Oh, tragic. And his half-bloody face only adds to the build-up and his two-faced nature. Yeah, so doesn't look like you're going to get the girl in the end after all. A bittersweet outcome overall. Wrapping up, I have to mention my favorite scene, besides the Dale and Allison encounter at the gas station. Because that was yeah. I would say the moment Tucker and Dale thought the college kids were part of a suicide pact. That killed me. Not, not literally, not literally. You see, Green Room and Tucker and Dale vs. Evil are two films I personally have on my top favorite horror list. Not only a guilty pleasure, but sends along a message we can all relate to. The true definition of common sense ain't so common. And our preconceived judgments may just be our tragedy. Until next time, ciao now.